0: Good morning. How's everybody doing today? It's kind of crazy season in the life of our church, isn't it? It's like last week was Easter, and then last night was prom, and thank you, props to you guys for being here today. That's really good. And then, yeah, that's really good. And then a Main Street Festival is crazy. Uh, my family went with me last night, and we walked the streets, and it's like 50,000 people here shopping for wood and art, and it was, it was crazy. <laughs> Like, it's absolutely insane. So it's a miracle you guys, like, found a spot. I'm preaching here this morning because Patrick could not find a parking spot. So um, that's where I'm here. Um, But actually, he's in Oklahoma right now speaking at a youth rally. Um, He'll be back next week. Next week, we're going to be graduating our seniors. Um, We're going to honor our our students that are graduating. Patrick and I are going to co-teach and kind of talk about um, the body's role, the the gathering's role in developing the next generation. So we're excited about that message. Um, we hope to see you next week. If you're new here, uh, my name is Braden. Um, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, we're we're so glad you're here. Um, if you're trying us out in the last couple of weeks, um, we'd really appreciate it if you if you fill out the, the the guest card, the comment card, so so we can learn more about you and our team can serve you better. Um, I want to one last thing I want to talk about before we dive in. Um, we are going to be doing this thing called family time after the sermon. And uh, it's kind of a, co- a combination of communion and uh, family prayer time. And so don't, don't worry, like, we're going to be at the stations after it's over. I'm going to talk you through it. But this is, we call this room the family room. Um, This is one big extended family, 4th Avenue. So we're going to spend time together at the stations. I'll talk you through it at the end. Um, But use this time, this sermon time, um, to prepare your hearts for that communion and family time. It's my favorite time of the whole week when we get to fellowship together. It'll be great. But we need to dive right in, okay? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10, we're just going to go from there. I'm going to start in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. That's a question we ask a lot, isn't it? But, but I want to know who this guy is. Like, he just comes along onto the scene so suddenly. Who, who is this guy? He's an expert in the law. There's other translations call him a lawyer. But his entire job was to make sure that people followed the law of God and we're right with God. And he has a question, and it's a question many of us ask, and it's worded a little differently than, than we might word it, but, but we still ask it. What must I do? Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he wants the answer. He wants the, the secret handshake. He wants the password. He's like, I, I've been studying the law my whole life, I know there are certain things that you need to do to please God. I know there are certain things that we need to do to, to have a right standing with God. What do you have to do? He, he's programmed. He, he's programmed. He, he's like, please, please boil it down to a list of things I need to do so I can do them. Do you have a list? I have a list. I, I've been developing it for years. Do you have that list? The things that, I, that you need to do to, to, to have eternal life? You know the list I'm talking about? Some of, some of our lists are exactly the same. It's like we went to the same church growing up. Like some of us, we know we need to do these three things or these four things or this one thing. And we have this list, this debate, this discussion on what we need to do. What are the requirements to inherit eternal life? I think a lot of us can identify with this expert in the law here this morning. We are all wondering in our hearts what it takes to be right with God. We're, we're asking these questions Am I okay? Am I right with God? Are, are other people okay? Who's okay? Who's not okay? Last week at Easter, Patrick talked about the different questions God asks of us. In Genesis 3, God asks us, where are you? He wants to know where we are in standing with him. And he also talked about last week when, when the women come up to him after he rises from the dead, he says, who is it that you're looking for? Th- these are questions God asks of us, but, but if we're honest, we have questions of God as well, don't we? We all ask questions of God. Are you okay, God? Can I trust you? Can I put my faith in you? Are, are you worth um, loving? Are you worth trusting? Are you worth obeying? But also this, these other questions we ask God. Am I okay? Are, are we on good terms, God? Are we on right standing? Not only am I okay, are they okay? We want to know. We really want to know. Are, are we okay? We have questions, just like this guy has. What do we have to do? What does it take? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I, I grew up um, having these debates. My, my family, we would talk about this all the time. What does it take? What do we got to do? What are the things we need to do to get right with God? We, we'd talk about this all the time. And we, I, if you're like me, you have these discussions as well. Uh, my, my grandpa, he would champion these discussions. Um, I want to talk about my grandpa for a second. My, my grandpa, he, he served um, in World War II. Um, he was a legend in our family. When he came home, um, he, he's, he's our hero. When he came home, he 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 got a sum of money and was able to buy a farm. He farmed on that land for nearly 60 years of his life. He was the hardest worker I know. Like, his hands were always huge, you know, and calloused, and just, he, he's one of the hardest workers. And But he also loved God. He, he loved the Lord so much. Um, he would have this thing called tractor time when he would plow, and um he is huge field and he would be plowing and he would use this time to to memorize scripture and to pray and to sing hymns i i know this because he let me in on this secret as a little kid i would sit in the tractor with him and i know what his favorite hymns were because we would sing them together like he loved the lord and we were blessed to have a, a big family and close by we all lived together we all went to the same church we all worshiped together as a family and after church we would all go to grandma and papa's house on the farm for a big family dinner, and uh, every week, I I loved it, it was so great, Swiss steak, mashed potatoes, gravy, green bean casserole, I can still smell the rolls from here 20 years later, like, I love that, it was such a great time, and we would always be talking and clamoring around, and my grandpa, he would always sit in the corner um, of the dining room, and every now and again, every so often, he he would do this, as we were talking, he just raised his hand, and then slam it down and when he does that we all stop we're like oh what what's going on grandpa what's going on pat ball and you go i just don't know what is it grandpa what are you talking about i just don't know i am a I, i'm a good guy i try to i try to mind my p's and q's i try to pray and I, I try to have the right relationship with god and you know i go to church i love you guys i try to teach you what the bible is but but i just don't know i'm not quite sure Because how could a guy like me get to heaven? How could a guy like me? I just don't know if I have what it takes. I just don't know. Heaven doesn't have room for me, so I still have doubts. And to this day, we still don't know if he legitimately had doubts or was trying to get us to talk through it. Because the next hour would be us trying to talk him down. You know? No, you're all right. You're all good. It's okay. Don't worry about it, Grandpa. Well, he passed away uh, 12 years ago this April, and, and we miss him dearly. But when he passed away, he he did so in peace, um, and he he died with a a smile on his face, a a smirk. Somehow we knew that he knew at that time. But we all have these questions. What does it take? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Christianity today obsesses over this question. We're obsessed with it, but we word it differently. We would say things like, what do I have to do to be saved? Saved. Or in other words, what is the bare minimum I have to do? What is the secret handshake? What is the password? What is the prayer? Who do I have to repeat it after to baptize or not to baptize? We have all these questions. What gets me a ticket to the ultimate destination? What gets me to heaven and keeps me from hell? When we talk about are you saved, we're really asking, are you saved from the fires of hell? But when the Bible talks about it, it's more you're saved from the way you were living the destructive living you were living. Popular Christianity hinges everything on this question. The, the, the pamphlets, the gospel tracks, the TV shows, the, the, the movies, the, the sermons. Some of you are thinking like, yeah, your sermon. <laughs> They're all focused on this question. Have you seen the billboards? Have you seen them? Uh, one, of, one of my students, poor Ed Eubanks, he was driving through Florida. He saw a billboard and it scared him, like he had nightmares about it, and he he was asking me about it, Um, it's it's this, it's this, it's this picture here, but it's like, you're driving down the highway, it's your choice, heaven or hell, you decide, you know, here's some other ones, check this out, this one, it's like cartoon Jesus going, for me or against me, against me, there's hell to pay, like, he's just reminding you, You know, and if you made, if you like made this billboard or if you like raised the money for it, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sure that was money well spent, I'm sure. Um, But yeah, they're everywhere. Um, This one, without Jesus Christ, it's like a devil pitchfork. Um, You'll spend eternity with me. Rah! You know, that's that's scary. Um, This one um, was right outside my hometown. I drove by it every time I went to Bible college. And um, it just simply says, hell is real. Hell is real. It's the less popular sequel to heaven is for real. And, um, that, uh, hell is real. Like I, there's the other ones too. Like if you died tonight, where would you go? I'm like, ah, I don't know what to think about that. Or I, I always wanted to make a billboard that said, if you died in a car crash reading this billboard, do you know where you would go? Anyway, I don't know, but we have replaced a relationship with God with a destination. We have made it more about heaven and hell than about Jesus. I heard a sermon once, this guy, like, he was doing the altar call at the end, and he says, if you're not, the Bible says, if you're not 100% sure, you're 100% sure that you will be going to hell. And I'm like, that so shocked me, that so scared me, like, if I'm not 100%, my grandpa's not 100%, like, and it scared me half to death, like, and then I studied the Bible and found that that's not in there at all. We're spending all this money, all this time, all this effort, all this energy to convince the world that heaven is for real. But what the world really wants to know is, is Jesus for real? Are Christians for real? Is this love that you profess for real? What do I need to do to get to heaven, we ask. What do I need to do to avoid hell, we ask. Believe it or not, when these questions are asked in the Bible, the Bible frowns on these questions. We should be asking, the Bible's teaching us, we should be asking, what does it mean to live like God? What does it mean to love like God? What does it mean to have compassion like God? What, what, what do I need to do is our question. And if that's the question that we hinge everything on, if that's the question on the forefront of our mind, then like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This question is being asked of Jesus. Like, If you ever wanted to know exactly what you needed to do, you can go to this account right here, right? This debate can be settled. It's, it's a person who's thinking just like us, going to Jesus, asking this question, what do I need to do? What do you think his response is going to be? Like, aren't you on the edge of your seat to see what Jesus says? You think he's gonna say, that's a good question. Repeat after me this prayer, you know? Oh, we got another one for the Lord. Like, what do you think he's gonna do? What do you think he's gonna do? What's his response? Verse 26, check this out. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? That's really interesting, isn't it? He he gives this expert in the law dignity to, to answer it. Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the answer. That's what you need to do. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus loves this answer. This is the correct answer. This is a great answer. Notice he doesn't say, though, notice Jesus doesn't say, do this and you will have eternal life. Jesus is far more concerned with how this person is living now, how you are living now. He's more concerned about that. Do this and you will live. In other words, this is what it means to be alive. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor at yourself is the essence of what you were created to do. It's the essence of, of who you were supposed to be. Do this and you will live. It's not about waiting for heaven to come with your magic password and your Jesus ticket in hand. He, he wants to know how are you participating with God now? What are you doing to bring heaven to earth now? We have this escapist mentality. And it's really popular. Where we, we sing, we even sing these songs like some glad morning when this life is over i'll fly away you know as if the, the world is horrible and one day we'll be able to escape it we'll be able to fly away or or we we just long for the day where where all this pain will be over and we get to spend eternity with god now that, that's not a bad sentiment to have it's a great to long to be with god it's a great thing to do but but what are we doing about this right now that's the question What are we doing to bring heaven on earth right now? What are we doing to live in the kingdom of God now? We'll we'll say this. When we see see horrible situations, we'll say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And yes, that's a great sentiment to have. But there are people in our midst that are praying that too. And we have to remember the fact that Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. We can be that answer to prayer. We can help as well. We can be Jesus to them. This is what it means to be alive. It's about following Jesus now. And he wants us to participate with him. Verse 29. Verse 29. But this, this expert in the law, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, he is, he is very concerned with getting it right. He wants to justify himself. And don't we all, don't we all want to be right with God? Don't we all want to have a right standing with God? He wants to justify himself. This neighbor line, it's hanging him up. He can't get over it. He can't get past it. He wants to know who his neighbor is. If everything hinges on loving God and loving your neighbor, he wants to know who his neighbor is. It's a fair question. He wants it defined. Who is my neighbor? But when he asks this, we need to understand something. What he's also asking, and maybe more importantly, he's asking not only who is my neighbor, he wants to know who is not my neighbor. See, you loved God back then more by who you chose not to associate with than who you did. The people who loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they they also, like, avoided sinners. They didn't associate with them. They hated people, too. See, he's concerned with Jesus' neighbors. He's like, my neighbors are the people that look like me and think like me and talk like me and act like me. I know who my neighbors are, but Jesus, when I see you hanging around your neighbors, it causes me to have some, some questions. He's questioning. When he sees Jesus' group of friends, the people he hangs out with, he's like, who is my neighbor? Because I see who your neighbors are and they're different than my neighbors. Your neighbors, Jesus, are prostitutes, drunks, tax collectors. You talk to and touch lepers. That's insane. You seem to be hanging out with people I hate. You are eating with them. As Patrick always says, in the first century, you are who you a- eat with, who you ate with. Why are you eating with them? Who am I supposed to love, Jesus? More importantly, who am I supposed to hate? Who is my neighbor? Because if you loved God, you would hate the things he hates. That's, that's, his, that's his mentality. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, he replies to the story, doesn't he? He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. You're either half dead or half alive. Jesus is a glass half dead kind of guy in this story. Have you been there before? Have you been there? Have you? Sometimes we feel like this, this person that's a victim of, of theft, don't we? This guy who's been robbed. Have you ever felt that way? This guy is robbed and left for dead. Something has been taken from him. He, he's, he's beaten up, he, he's stripped naked, he's, he's vulnerable. He, he's, he's being taken advantage of, he's more dead than alive. He, he's crying out for help. Many of us in this room have been in that situation before. Many of us have had seasons in our lives where we feel like the man in the ditch, haven't we? Some of us in this room are feeling that right now. We we feel beaten up. We feel like life has chewed us up and spat us out. We feel robbed. We, we, We feel like there's no hope. We feel more dead than alive. Some of us in this room have been talked to by family members and coworkers. They've been bugging you to come to church for weeks now, months now, years now, and, and some of us, you, we walk in and we're just like, I'm going to give this church thing one more shot. One more shot. You know, I don't feel it. If I, don't, I don't see the love. I'm done. Some of us have been chewed up and spat out by churches where, where the churches are robbing them. Verse 31. This person is, is waiting in the ditch, praying and hoping for help. Verse 31. A priest, a priest, a hero, maybe, A priest happened to be going down the road, that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. See, when it's talking about how um, it just happened to be happening, like sometimes the, the translation says, as chance would have it or as luck would have it, a priest was passing down by the road. This is his chance. But shockingly, this priest doesn't do anything for him. He passes by on the other side. Notice it says that he saw him. This man is not off into the ditch where people can't see him. He's not hiding underneath bushes or in thorns or behind rocks. He, the priest clearly sees him, clearly seen. And priests should know better. Because priests were the highest ranking members of the temple system. that They were literally the representatives of God on earth. And if anybody were to help this man, it would be a priest. But he does not. Verse 32. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the audience sees exactly where Jesus is going with this. They hear stories like this all the time. This is a classic framework for a parable. And they they hear these all the time. It's a three-character parable. Like the first one was supposed to help, did not. The second one with a little less stature was supposed to help, he did not. The third one, now we know. The third one we'll be able to identify with. That's that's how it was going in their minds. And also in this first century audience, the Jewish audience, they, they knew this temple system extremely well. It was everybody that was in this, this culture at the time participated in the Jewish temple system, All right, Everybody, everybody in Jesus' audience during this parable participated. And it was made up of three categories of people. There were priests, Levites, and then laymen. The priests were like the, the preachers. They knew better, like they were the, the pastors or the shepherds of, of the temple system. They know way better. They're the leaders of the whole system. The Levites, they were like, like uh, ministry leaders or deacons. Like they were highly respected. They, they participated in the work of the Lord. But, and in the third category, of people were laymen. It was the common people, the, the congregation, the people that come and go all the time. So the, the audience knows exactly where Jesus is going with this. Like they, they're figuring out the moral of the story as he's talking about it. The priest was supposed to didn't. The Levite was supposed to didn't. Oh, Jesus, I see where you're going with it. Me, I'm supposed to help him out. I'm supposed to help out the guy that looks like me and thinks like me and talks like me and acts like me. I will be a good neighbor, Jesus. Thanks for pointing that out. So the people who look like me that are in need, I need to be a neighbor too. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Like that's what, that, I get that. Jesus, this is a great sermon. I get it. I understand. I know where you're going with it. He's going to shock the world though. He's not going to finish this story like they were finishing it in their minds. He will stay. He will instead say something very, very shocking. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan. I can't even begin to describe for you the hatred shared between the Jews and Samaritans in the first century. It was a nasty feud that lasted well over 500 years. They hated each other. They hated each other. Like, I I don't even have the time to describe for you the level of hatred these two groups had for one another. I just can't do it. You could, you could seek them out and ask them their side of the story. It would be a week-long discussion. I, I have no, I can't even describe. They hated each other. They're still fighting to this day. Like when you see on the news about the West Bank and Palestinian conflict and, and Israeli conflict, like they're still fighting over land and heritage and tradition. Like this feud predates Islam by a thousand years. And they came in and, and they took sides and they're still fighting it to this day. They hate each other. And they really hated each other in the first century. Samaritans to a Jew in the first century, they were lower than dogs. They were the most hated group by far. Samaritans, they hated Jews too. The feeling was, the sentiment was mutual. Think of the worst hatred and prejudice against a people group or a race throughout history. You still haven't even scratched the surface of this feud between the Samaritans and the Jews in the first century. And remember, remember this. You were a good Jew back then more for who you hated and who you did not associate with than who you did. If you despised lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes and drunkards, you sure despised Samaritans. You were considered to love God if you despised them. There's a phrase we use a lot, and um, it's, it's thrown around Christianity a lot today. Um, it's love the sin or love the sinner hate the sin remember that or love the sinner hate the sin or sometimes you switch it too right i can't switch it in my head right now i'm tired um you either you either hate the sin and love the sinner or love the sinner and hate the sin and we actually had a debate about that right like which one's more correct well, that phrase isn't in the Bible. It's foreign to the Bible. Um, but, but back then, they would have a very similar phrase, and it was way more extreme. They would, they would do this, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's so foreign to them. But they had another one that was really popular. They said this a lot in the first century. They said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. That is what a good Jew was supposed to do. That's how they viewed the world. That's what you're supposed to do. Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. They thought that they were reflecting God when they would say things like that. They they thought that God was a hateful, mean, vindicative, and unmerciful God when it came to sinners. They they thought that he hated them and wouldn't associate with them. They even thought that when people were deformed or had disabilities or, or when you had leprosy, that they were cursed and stricken by God because of something they did. So you dare not associate with them Because if you did, that means that you were um, hanging out with them and associating with them, and God would strike you too. They, They wouldn't go near them. It's been said that the Old Testament is a debate about the character of God, but Jesus settles the debate. And it's phenomenal what he says. He says it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, which means it's a very popular phrase at the time. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is so radical. That is so earth-shattering and groundbreaking when he says that. You've heard it said, he's settling the the debate about who God is. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. The word for pity here in the Greek is the word compassion. It's the word we get for compassion. A lot of translations say that too. It's, It's a much stronger word what he's doing. And compassion is a Latin word. And it's two words put together. And the first word is is calm. The second word is passion. And calm means with, and passion means suffering. Like this is Easter season. We've seen the passion of the Christ. Um, Sometimes we watch it every year. Well, that just means the suffering of the Christ. That's what that means. So when you're with suffering, which when you have compassion, you you are suffering with a person's suffering. That's what that means. So if you see someone in need or you see someone suffering, you are with them right next to them. So it says that the Samaritan had compassion on him, took pity on him. He has compassion. A person who is compassionate is a person who suffers with people's suffering. And God does this as well. When Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf, this is in line with the character of God. God is a compassionate God. We see this in Exodus 34 verse 6 this is this is when God is revealing to Moses straight from his mouth who he is and and how he's to be defined. He says this in exodus thirty four six God passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the first time God audibly reveals his character from his own mouth in the Bible, that he is describing and defining. Who he is. People moved by compassion act like God. The Samaritan, he has all the characteristics outlined in Exodus 34, 6. He has all of them, but but Jesus singles out compassion. Compassion. What would it look like if we were a people marked by compassion? What would it look like if we suffered with those suffering? If we put others' needs before our own? What What would our marriages look like if we were marked with compassion? What would our life groups, what would our, what would our church look like? What would Fourth Avenue Church of Christ look like if we were known as the compassionate church, the one who suffers with others who are suffering, the one who, who, are, who are, are outlined by the things God outlines himself in in Exodus 34? What if we were known to be the compassionate church that's gracious and, 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 and loving and, and kind and slow to anger? What, what if we were known as the church that was faithful, the church that's in line with the character of God. What would that look like? Verse 34. The Samaritan went to this man, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. These were very expensive back then, um, and he's doing this because he sees a need for it, a big one. Uh, this, this man, he, he's not doing this to prevent infection. He's doing it because he sees signs of it. Right? How long has this man been in the ditch? That's what I want to know. How long has he been there? half dead. The Samaritan rushes to him, bandages his wounds, tries to prevent um, further infection spreading because he loves them. Like in the skit, in the VBS skits, like it's, it's normally the priest comes by and then 30 seconds later the Levite and then 10 seconds later the Samaritan. We're probably talking hours, maybe a day before this person is helped. How long has he been in the ditch? Then he put the man on his donkey brought him to an inn and took care of him. He's sitting up through the night with him, making sure he's okay. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii, which is like two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is incredible. Like, look after him as long as you possibly can. If he wakes up, nurse him back to health. Make sure he's okay. If he wakes up and opens the seal on the bottle, like, I'll pay for it. That's what he's saying. This is long before credit cards and ends, and he's doing that. He's working for it. He's working extra hard to pay for this. Think about this, too. He is doing all of these things outside of Samaritan territory. He's not in his neighborhood. He, he is, he, Jesus even notes that he's traveling. He's far from home And this is really dangerous times because when Jesus is telling this parable and he's talking about robbers, like in their minds, they're probably like, I bet a Samaritan did it. I bet a Samaritan beat him up. So if he's putting him on his donkey and taking him, he's in hostile land. People hate him. What are they going to assume as he's taking this man to the inn? What's he doing? What are they thinking of him? Like he is putting his life in danger. He is supposed to hate this man that he's rescuing. He's supposed to hate him. And the man clearly is supposed to hate him, as well. He's putting his life in danger. He's risking his life for him. I can't even think of a modern equivalent for what this is. Like, uh, I've heard different suggestions this past couple weeks. Um, think about the Wild West, okay? Wild West, um, and a cowboy is injured or beaten up, fallen in the desert, and an and, and Indian comes up to him, Native American, puts him on his horse, bandages his wounds, rides him into town on the saloon, right? That's kind of what we're going after here, right? Or Jim Crow South, the, heart, the, highest, the height of racial tension, you know, at the height of the civil rights movement. A, a, a white girl gets, gets injured or, or beat up, and a, a black man comes to her aid and then takes her to the authorities. Like, imagine, they're putting their life in danger. They're putting their, their safety and well-being in danger to, to help someone in need because they have compassion. Or, or a Muslim in, the, in the, the height of the war on terror, helping a, a wounded U.S. soldier, or vice versa. Think about this, a member of, of Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the, the God Hates Fags Church with the picketing and the protesting, and, and one of their church members are in a ditch, and then a married or unmarried gay couple, um, they come to their aid and then take them to the church building. This is, this is uncomfortable, isn't it? We're going into uncharted territory. This is, this is uncomfortable teaching. His teaching is so radical and uncomfortable. The the expert in the law is speechless. Absolutely speechless. Verse 6, verse 36, sorry. Which of these things do you think the neighbor was? Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. his, His lips quivering as he says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus then says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I want to close with a story. Um, Lindsay and I have this friend. His name's Brent. And um, he's a Christian, husband, father. Good guy. Um, Brent lives in Brentwood. What are the odds? And um, he, he had been trying to think of different things to do to volunteer and serve at his church. That's what he was trying to do. And his church didn't really have that many opportunities for him to serve. So they said, why don't you go to the community volunteer fair and just see what's out there? And so he tried for a while to, to see different organizations and, and uh, they were appreciative of his help. But the director said, listen, you have such a heart, Brent. You have such a heart for helping people. I want you to think about this, this, uh, this opportunity. This is a secular organization trying to find places to volunteer. There's this place called Oasis, and it's not a ministry. It's not church-related at all. It's just called Oasis, and it's in, it's in Nashville. And what it serves as is, is, a, is a haven, a resting place for people in the lesbian, gay, transgender, and bisexual community. And it, they have their own community, and it, it's what they do. And, and he's like, I don't want to go serve at that at all. There's nothing in me. It, it, there's something in my heart that just feels wrong about it. But he prayed about it, sought counsel on it and they said, and then finally said, like, I'll give it a chance. He, he went to the first meeting to hear their, their needs or whatever, and he had his arms folded. He's just like, this is ridiculous. He was the only straight man there with, with a wife and kids in the entire room, and, and the things he saw, he's just like, oh, makes, he made his skin crawl, and the hair stand up on the back of his neck, but then over time, he got to hear some of their needs, and there's a big need that, that he didn't really know of that they, they conveyed to him, and it's that the transgendered community. There are people that, that haven't had operations yet, but in their heart, they've changed genders. And if you, if you believe like what I believe on, on how this is happening, think of all the, the forces in their lives that are leading them to this, this place and this decision. But they're, they're in high school, they're teenagers, they're, and, and they've made this decision to switch genders. And their, their families rejected them, kicked them out of the house. Their, their schools rejected them. Their friend groups rejected them and and they're all alone and they're they're getting shuffled through the system they're poor and and they don't know what to do and they long for even the opportunity to buy clothes of a different gender and i know it's making me uncomfortable talking about it you know And, and he 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 was uncomfortable but he got this idea to to do a clothing drive for transgendered high schoolers in the area and he went he brought it to his church and they said over our dead body will you do that there's no way, you're not doing that. And so he just went to the community and he raised it. And he, he, he got 1,500 items of clothing and he, he helped clothe over 100 transgendered high schoolers in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Alabama. And the, the hugs and the tears and the thank you so much for doing this, it, it, just, it, it just changed his whole outlook on this. Like I, I was even considering, I'm like, do I even tell this story, Patrick. Do I even tell this story? What is that going to do? And he goes, yes, tell it. Because this is, this is what I want them to know. This is what I've seen in churches. Churches wrongfully assume that if they help people they disagree with, they will be contaminated by them. If people help people they disagree with, Christians help people they disagree with, they'll be contaminated by them. But that Samaritan did not have this attitude, and Jesus praised him for it. And, and what was able to be accomplished, because our friend Brent did that, I mean, he's a light for Jesus in a dark place because of this. It makes us uncomfortable, though. Who's in the ditch this morning? Who do, who do we need to help that's in the ditch? Who are the people? Because remember, the Samaritan hated this man, and likewise, right? He disagreed with how this man was, and he still helped him. He had compassion on him. So who's in the ditch? Could we really be the church? Could 4th Avenue be the church that does clothing drives for transgendered people? C- can, we, can we be such a champion of the sanctity of marriage that instead of protesting and picketing, we could actually love our spouse as we love ourselves? C- could we be that? Could we be that group of people? Who, could we do a better job loving people who live in alternative lifestyles? All those people who are looking for love and all the wrong... No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not gonna say that. All the wrong places. I I don't think God cares where you look for love. I just hope, I just think that he wants to make sure that they find it here. Can I get an amen on that? Or am I all by myself on this? Like, let's make sure that they find love here. Who cares where they're looking for love, but make sure they find it here. Are we upset? Are we uncomfortable? Imagine how Jesus' audience felt. When he say this. And, and look at what he says in, in Matthew 22. I'm, this is the last scripture this morning. Matthew 22, 36-40. They ask him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, or, and, with all, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But the second is like this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. The second is like it. The second is like it. He equates the two. They ask for one commandment. He gives them two. The second is like it because your love for others reveals your love for God. You can't, you can't say, I love God and hate others. It doesn't gel with who God is because God is love. You can't love God and then hate other people. You have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because And when you do that, you're, you're proving your love for God. I was trying to sum it up, I can't, um, that's like seven pages, all right, um, I was trying to get it, cut it down to something, but uh, your pastor, Patrick Mead, he did a post on Facebook on Friday, I want to read it to you, okay, he summed it up in a sentence, what I tried to do in seven pages, and it's awesome, check this out, he says this, on Friday, you may be more doctrinally correct and pure than I am, but I will never let you out love me, you may be more doctrinally correct and pure than I am, but I will never let you outlove me. Isn't it great that we have a pastor that leads with love? Isn't that great? I will never let you outlove me. What a challenge. What if we were the church that said, "I will never let anybody out love me. I will love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I will love my neighbor as myself. I will love you. I will love. I will lead with love. If you could today, um, go to that Facebook post. And just comment, say thank you for leading with love. We appreciate you for leading with love. Um, what we're going to do now is transition to family communion time. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the stations. I'm going I'm to pray in a minute, and then we're going to go to this. And, and how, this is what this is going to be. This is going to be a room where, where we love on one another. This is going to be a place where we find love. Like, this is a time of fellowship. This is a time to break bread together. This is a time to remember who Jesus is together. We're going to do this at the stations. And if you're here this morning and you can't identify with the Samaritan or, 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 or the, the priest or the Levite, but you identify more with the person in the ditch, if you're here and you're giving church one last shot, if you have something on your heart and, you're, and it's really weighing you down, if that's, if that's on your mind this morning, I want you to know that, that there will be shepherds at each table all around the room, and they're going to go when I pray. And they're going to be there helping um, serve communion. But but if if you need prayer, if if you need um, someone to talk with you and pray with you and love on you, they'll be there. And-